Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Psalms, chapter 19, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 10. Let us listen now for God's word to us today. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has sent a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. My wife and I, as the parents of a four-month-old, and I'm sure our baptismal parents will be familiar with this, have decided to pass the time during our many sleepless nights by sending each other cute little humorous internet memes from our smartphones back and forth in silence. I was tickled by this recent one. There was a couple pleasantly smiling in an embrace on a couch and the caption read, arguing with your partner is like trying to read the terms of use on the internet. Eventually you just give up and say, I agree. <laughs> now it could be a partner in your household, a parent or a sibling, or a cherished friend, but this meme gets at our angst for arguing. We'd all rather avoid debate for the sake of unity or for our own personal peace. However, it's difficult to look to scripture to justify that desire for conciliation. What I mean is that among the many voices that emerge from the Bible, there are many arguments. And sometimes like our scripture passages this morning from Ecclesiastes and the Psalms, they are downright interminable more like equations for which we are eternally seeking balance than conflicts that simply end. So who in this case are our disputants? Well, in one corner, we have Ecclesiastes Koholith, a Hebrew word for teacher. This T 
teacher is sometimes considered a stand-in for King Solomon in his elder years, but in its final form, scholars believe it was composed in the fourth century BCE in post-exilic, cosmopolitan, and Persian-influenced Jerusalem. And in that cosmopolitan hotbed of a city, Ecclesiastes emerges as a disillusioned, hard-nosed, and cynical voice about life. It's the kind of text that can feel at home in the grittiness of our own metropolis. As scripture's chief cynic, there is no pundit, no Oscar the Grouch of Sesame Street fame, no hardened friend or family member you know who will likely match the inner curmudgeon that, than someone who begins their phrases like vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity, or in the Common English Bible translation, all is meaningless. The psalmist in the other corner speaks to a world chock full of meaning. Composed in that same post-exilic environment, the psalmist trades indifference for the full range of human emotions toward the divine joy anger, lament, hope. In such hands, the Psalms become the Bible's book of prayer and poetry that always strives for praise of God and God's creation. Even lament, even in lament, the Psalms offer us praise in a minor key. And in this debate between the cynic and the praiseful, the early verses of Psalm 19 present us with the question of the moment. Are the heavens truly telling us of the glory of God? Does nature's voice reveal to us as the psalm insists that God is worth glorifying? That God is both grand and ultimately good? To answer a question posed in poetry, sometimes it helps to take a poet's view. Many years ago, a young student at Oxford University in England gave up a promising academic career to live as a humble Jesuit priest. He was by all accounts a rather odd and ornery personality, prone to bouts of sickness, but had a feverish desire to write poetry. His name was Gerald Manley Hopkins. And even after he swore off the poetry for an ascetic life, he kept up the craft. And in 1877, he penned these words. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil, crushed. He was riffing, as jazz artists say, on Psalm 19. In place of God's glory, he wrote of God's grandeur. But like the psalmist, he was trying to describe an almost indescribable divine presence. He felt coursing throughout the natural world. To believe the world is charged is to know that nature itself has a voice to exclaim that reality. 
Those who knew Hopkins, as a recent biography tells us, noticed that Hopkins was in dogged pursuit of nature's voice. Friends noted his penchant for, quote, stooping down to study wet sand or blades of grass or little blue flowers. In fact, he playfully told his younger brothers to follow suit by eating those same flowers so that they would truly understand them. It's the kind of boundless curiosity and hunger to unlock nature's secrets that hears its voice and communions with its heart that you'll find from children playing with a couple square inches of mud and rock, discovering how much life is charged in one speck of earth. That same desire to commune with nature's voice wound its way into me after I made a pilgrimage last year to the South Carolina coast. Since then, any time I take a dip into a pool or a lake or an ocean, I take a moment to repeat a little liturgy, not unlike the one that we repeated during our baptismal celebration today. A few short words they are that remind me of my connection to this vital element of life. I draw my hands into the water, I lift it, them up and let the droplets run back saying, I am a child of the waters. My ancestors sojourned through the waters of the Atlantic. My father swam through the waters of Lake Michigan. I married upon the shores of the Pacific. I am a child of the waters. Little liturgies like this one are ways of extending an embrace to the natural world so that we might, like a child playing in the mud or eating flowers, get within shouting distance of nature's voice. But often nature's voice gets drowned out by another voice, the voice of the teacher of Ecclesiastes telling us that all is not right and joyful in the world. Under that sun which runs its course like an athlete running the Chicago Marathon on an October day, that sun sits over a lot of toil and strife and suffering. Hopkins knew this too. In his poem on God's grandeur, he grieves. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade and bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. It is, in other words, the human voice that drowns out nature's praise because the world under the sun is loud and grating with human struggles with nature, the human desire to exploit, to exploit nature, or human grief when it seems as though nature takes away what people hold dear. And in the face of such tragedies, we wonder, where exactly is God's glory in all this? Is God's glory still found when a family loses all they have in a wildfire? Is God's glory still there when the farms fail due to drought and a whole economy withers away? Is God's glory in the unjust and poisonous weapons that humans unleash to other human communities? 
The teacher of Ecclesiastes says, it's the same old story of pain and contradiction, whether in post-exilic Jerusalem or today. Today, our siblings in Israel and Palestine wake up to violence that has them and many around the globe watching events unfold, crying out like the teacher that there is frustratingly nothing new under the sun and that it's all too familiar and wearisome, this violence, this carnage. We seem as helpless as the earth, moon, and stars embarking on their futile course to do anything about it. The streams run into the sea, but they are never filled, says the teacher. Before such realities, ancient and modern, natural and human, we cannot be naive optimists. None of us can sit with such pain and not call it pain. Now the story and the poetry could end there. We might affirm the stoic cynicism of Ecclesiastes full stop. But the psalm invites us to lift our thoughts a little higher. In the last stanzas of Hopkins' poetry, it swings back in the direction of hope. He says, and for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. Nature is never spent. When Hopkins lived in the early decades of the modern industrial economy, given the impending impact of climate change, I am loath to utter the same words that he uttered cavalierly. Channeling my own inner teacher, I wonder if fear of nature's demise rather than its resiliency would give us ample motivation to keep the worst from happening. Nevertheless, Hopkins, like the psalmist, wants us to know that in the face of lament, nature's last word is praise. Robin Wall Kimmerer is another kind of poet laureate. She's a trained botanist and a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation, which traces its origins to these very shores of Lake Michigan upon which we gather today. And she has her own way of getting up close to listen to the voice of nature through the instruments of indigenous and Western science. She encourages us to listen from nature's enduring praise. She invites us to see plants as our sage teachers. Take moss, for example, she says. These green, fuzzy little plants that have the look and feel of carpet have a 350 million year head start on us in praising God. Moss began emerging from the oceans, living on rocks and basking in the sun and waters, and then they broke down nutrients in the rocks, sending them cascading into the seas, unleashing events that changed the climate as we know it and gave us human beings and mammals life. Kimmerer tells us that mosses take the long view. Remember that this is not the first time anything has happened. Yes, there's nothing new under the sun. But those same mosses have, as she says, reflected God's goodness beyond their humble size. They serve as healing forces, softly blanketing every kind of surface. They find livable footholds in abandoned buildings. They return life to radioactive Chernobyl 
Following the laws of nature and divine guidance, they have found a sustainable place in the family of creation, not seeking to dominate but to flourish. They're just one tiny plant, one voice, in the vast chorus of resilient praise that is nature. So how do we respond to that voice? In 1989, ecumenical patriarch Demetrios, Demetrios of the Orthodox Christian tradition called for a day of prayer for creation. And that spawned a move by the World Council of Churches to, des to designate the period from August to October 4th, ending in the Saint Day of Francis of Assisi as a, as a season of creation. Care for nature, care for creation, must certainly raise important political, economic, and cultural questions in our time. It must demand changes in policies and laws. But not all of us are policy experts or botanists. Like the psalmist, most of us are casual observers seeking wisdom where we can find it, seeking to celebrate the season of creation. And so maybe like the psalmist, our first task is to learn to listen. Simply listen. Listen. And I think that gift of listening is what we might model for the next generation, for Cassidy and for Shea, who we baptize today. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Will we listen? Amen.